0: Well, we're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is Romans chapter 8. So this is well worth following because we're going to be looking at this together. Romans 8. We're going to pick it up from verse 1. For you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? that remarkable text open. We're going to be looking at that uh, together. There is, uh, as we begin, an outline of uh, where we're going, which you all have received on your way in. Um, now, it's quite a lot going on in this chapter, so I'm going for quite a particular, um, uh, uh, a particular thing. Uh, I want to to draw out and show you, but we will have a question time at the end which will work a little bit differently. Um, So you have to be brave. But if you mention it now, if there are questions uh, or comments that you want to make um, on the back of uh, either what has been said or if there's things in the text that we've not covered and you'd like to know a bit more about, then um, you can ask. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask uh, God for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity now to gather as your people. And as we sit, we want to be those who sit um, under your word, uh, that you would um, uh, rule over us, uh, your people. We thank you that you are uh, the God who is truthful, good and sovereign. And so we pray again that we would show you to be uh, who you are in the way we respond to your word and that we would trust it, be obedient to it, and um, uh, listen uh, to what you have said, because it is true. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when it comes to understanding, uh, when it comes to um, an understanding of God, one of the great areas, conf- one of, the great areas of confusion concerns... Um, an understanding of the spirit. Now, in contrast to what we know, say, about Jesus, uh, you know, he died on a cross, three days later he rose again, what we know about the spirit can appear a little more enigmatic. Now, one of the reasons for this is that there can be a tendency to rely on experience, to determine our understanding of the Spirit and His work. You know, so particular feelings or experiences or... But they can all contribute, they can all be attributed to an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And while such experiences may be authentic, the question of authentication is a little bit more problematic. The issue here then is how do we in fact know the Spirit? Well, at this point, it's worth noting that our understanding of the Spirit is a revealed truth. We arrive at an understanding of who the Spirit is not simply because of a personal encounter with Him, but because of what the Scriptures say. In this way, our account of the Holy Spirit uses Precisely the same method that we use for our understanding of the Father and of the Son. In each case, we rely on the Bible to interpret and explain the Trinitarian relationships. In other words, how is it that we know about the Spirit? Our understanding of the Spirit is a revealed truth. Now, the Spirit is hugely present in the New Testament. And as you read Acts and the letters, you find that the, the Spirit is pervasive in the post-ascension, post-Ascension New Testament writings. Yet, the Spirit is somewhat self-effacing. Despite being pervasive, it's actually quite hard to spot him. That said, the Holy Spirit is very prominent in Romans chapter eight occurring by name 19 times. And the understanding of the spirit that Paul provides concerns how the spirit relates to our assurance of eternal life. So let's take a look. Now in verses 1 to 11, so 1 to 13, Paul keeps a contrast running, a contrast between... The flesh and the spirit. To have a look at an example, verse 5 For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Now, on first glance, we might think that Paul is making a distinction between that which is physical, the flesh, and that which is non physical. The spirit. The contrast then is between those who are concerned with material things and those who well, aren't concerned with those things, but instead concerned with spiritual things. It's the idea that to be a Christian is to try and be detached from this world so that a monk who lives separately from the world is what we're aiming for. But is that? what Paul has in view here. Let's read on um, from verse 6. So Romans 8, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, here Paul puts meat on the bones. So associated with flesh is death, a mind hostile to God, and an inability to submit to God's law and to please God. In contrast, associated with the spirit is life and peace with God. That is to say that Paul is not talking about uh, so that is to say that in talking about flesh and the spirit, Paul's not contrasting the physical with the non-physical, but contrasting the old age with the new age. Mu, in his uh, commentary in Romans, uh, puts it like this. The contrast of being in the flesh and in the spirit is a contrast between belonging to the old age of sin and death and belonging to the new age of righteousness and life. Flesh, then, sums up what we often call the world. That is all that's characteristic of this life in its rebellion against God. And in contrast to this realm is the realm dominated by the spirit, one of life and peace with God. Now, significant for us is who is it that takes us from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit? It's the spirit of God. Whilst we're restored to the kingdom of God through the reconciling work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, it is applied to the believer by the Holy Spirit. What we're talking about here is the spirit's work of giving life or regeneration. Now, notice that in these verses, the contrast is descriptive. It's not in the first instance an exhortation. Rather, this is the way it is. It is God by his spirit who does this work. On the one hand, you have people controlled by the flesh. On the other hand, you have people with a mindset controlled by the spirit. And this stresses the way that the father, son and spirit are working together to achieve the one plan of salvation. Rather than the, the son, well, he does his thing over there and the spirit, well, he's doing his thing over there, their relationships are configured in such a way as to bring about God's one plan of salvation. You can see it put together in Romans um, 8 verse... uh, Romans 8 verse 11. Romans 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is to say, the father who raised the Son by the Spirit, gives life to us by the same Spirit. We're beginning to see how an understanding of the Spirit, rather than bring confusion and therefore uncertainty, actually brings eternal life and therefore confidence in salvation. Well, the life that the Spirit provides is developed in verses 14 to 17 in terms of the Holy Spirit's work of adoption. So let's pick it up from verse 14. Romans 8 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Let me make a few observations. The first is that adoption is a sovereign act of God. You know, I cannot impose myself as a son on someone. Any any, um, decision to adopt me is fundamentally for them alone. In other words, the language of adoption assumes the priority of the action of God. It magnifies his grace to us, but also underpins our assurance. The second is that adoption has a personal tone to it. We are adopted as sons of the Father. Now, that said, adoption is an objective truth. Our status is not simply, you know, whatever we imagine it to be or we feel it to be, but what the Spirit of God attests. Thirdly, adoption makes us heirs. And... The reason that Paul speaks of sonship and not daughtership is because the implication of our sonship is that we inherit. The son and not the daughter is the heir. And so in this way, adoption, well, it has this sort of future focus um, of glory to come that Paul will explore further in the remainder of the chapter. But before we get there, it's worth noting the parallels between us as sons and Jesus as the son. Because Paul says that we're sons together with Christ as those who call on God as father, and we are also co-heirs together with Christ, verse 17. So in crying out, Abba, Father... The believer not only bears witness to being the son of God, but also to having a status comparable to that of Jesus himself. I mean, it's the term that Jesus himself used in addressing his father in Mark 14, verse 36. Christians have a relationship with God that has a parallel to Christ's own relationship to the father. However, despite such parallels, there are important uh, distinctions to be made. The first is that our sonship with God the Father has a beginning, whereas the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The second distinction is that of the difference of being a son by nature and being a son by adoption being a son by nature would mean that I would be a son by virtue of my very being. But this is not the case because Jesus reveals uh, me in and of myself as a God-hater and therefore not a true son. Rather, being a son by adoption would mean that I am a son by virtue of God's decision to have me as a son in his family. This is not because of anything inherent about my nature, but because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that we are, we're sons of adoption and not sons by nature. And so for this reason, we can't think of ourselves as equal children of God with Jesus. Instead, our sonship is mediated through Jesus. But this, of course, is not to diminish the blessings of our salvation. Salvation means nothing less than we were creatures, but now we are sons. And for this reason, we don't want to think of the idea of redemption as simply recreation and nothing more. The work of the Spirit means that we are redeemed creatures who become sons of God. Well, it's in Romans 8.26 that we learn that the Spirit intercedes for the people of God in prayer. Have a look. 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. But what does the Spirit pray Verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Or what is the will of God for which the Spirit prays? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called are those, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Including the will of God is his purpose to call those who he predestined to justify those who he called, and to glorify those whom He justified. Or to put it another way, the good of verse 28, of which God works all things, is defined in verse 29 and 30 as consisting in our ultimate conformity in heaven to the image of Christ and the glory that will then be ours. The will of God is this completion of our salvation, including, no doubt, all those things in this life that contribute to that final salvation, and sustain us on the path to that salvation. And for many of us, the things that we suffer will contribute to our good by refining our faith and strengthening our hope. And wonderfully, in our weakness, the Spirit intercedes for us in precisely these things. To quote um, Moo again, he says this, I take it that Paul is saying that our failure to know God's will and consequent inability to petition God specifically and assuredly is met by God's spirit, who himself expresses to God those intercessory petitions that perfectly match the will of God. When we do not know what to pray for, yes, even when we pray for things that are not best for us, we need not despair for we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession on our behalf. Now, an implication of this is that the Spirit is not a rival to God the Father and God the Son. There is no war of the gods. The Spirit's not a rival seeking to work his own end, and establish his own purpose. Rather, if I can put it this way, the Spirit is on the same page as the Father and the Son. They work together to bring about God's one plan of salvation. The Father sends the Spirit, and the Spirit's adopting work means that we're presented as co-heirs with the Son back to the Father. Well, we began by observing how there can be a certain confusion concerning the Spirit. And this can be fuelled by an understanding of the Spirit that comes from our experience rather than the revelation of the Bible. And unfortunately, such confusion can undermine our confidence in our salvation. But rather than be confused by the Spirit, this whole chapter is about the assurance that we have of our eternal life that's provided by the Spirit. It's because of the Spirit's work that we are no longer in the flesh, but we are now in the Spirit. We now have life with God, and it's one where we have been adopted as sons of God and are therefore heirs. And the same spirit intercedes for us in our weakness. He prays that those who have been predestined and called and justified will indeed be glorified. Now, rather than confusion, that creates uncertainty. An understanding of the spirit brings certainty and confidence in God's one plan of salvation. Now this comes as a great encouragement to us since the path to such glory involves suffering. As fellow heirs of Christ, we suffer. We will share in his glory, but we will also share in his sufferings. Paul's idea of conquering is not that we live above it all in blissful triumphalism. Paul is not here referring to a triumphant Christian life. Rather, the one who conquers, well, that is the one who continues to stand firm, who perseveres through it all. At the end of the day, the purpose of this chapter is to promote endurance in light of the certain hope and assurance of eternal life that God's Holy Spirit provides let me pray, and then I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, having read and reflected on Romans 8, it seems so contrary to the work of the Spirit to uh, be confused and to be uncertain about... um, Authentic Christian living or the Spirit's work. We thank you that, um, uh, that we can know the ministry of the Spirit because it's a revealed truth, not least by Paul in this chapter. And we thank you how the Spirit's work is of a piece with the work of your Father, of you the Father and the Son, that He applies the work of your Son, His um, redeeming work, to us as believers that we would be transferred from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit, where we have life and peace with you. We thank you for that life is nothing less than um, adoption as sons. And as such, that we are heirs. And we thank you that the spirit is involved in that work of interceding for us. That though we have already been predestined and called and justified, that we will be glorified and of that there is no doubt and therefore we can be confident even in the face of suffering uh, to persevere and we ask that we would do that and reflect on these things all the more and encourage one another in Jesus name amen. Okay at this point I will explain the live chat which is now seems very live. I know we can't, I can't do, I'm not going to do this every Sunday. This is just because. <laughs> um, so, I think it's probably more daunting for you. Maybe it's more daunting for me, I'm not sure, because you have to, if you have a question or comment, you've got to construct it live. You can't just type a Q and then type it in and then delete it and then change your mind. Um, so, I'm happy for there not to be any... Also, to be fair, it's less daunting for me because I've got uh, my... Uh, co-worker Tom Swinney at the back there, so I can just say, Tom, do you want to answer that one? He always likes that. I know you point to him, theory, he's got all the answers. I'm rolling my sleeves up, ready for a, I don't know, you might just be keen to sing the next song, which is a bit of a belter. But, um, oh, Nicky. Yes, bottom. Can I just repeat the question for the recording? Because we can do that now. And tell me if I get this right as well, it's always a check for me. So, um, Nikki's observed that in 8.15 it says that we've received the spirit of adoption as sons in whom we cry, Abba, Father. So that's sort of present tense. But then verse... Twenty-three. That actually, it says there that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And yeah, Nick, I think you yeah you're on the money in terms of this is explaining that we we have been adopted um, and we receive the deposit of the spirit, but that but that's not been fully paid up, and that will be paid up in full in the new heaven, new earth, where we. We will receive our inheritance and we'll take our place as glorified, sort of sons of God. So, yeah, and I think it's, I mean, I think it's one thing that I think the Christian world um, um, is, uh, has actually got quite clear in their understanding this whole now and not yet. So, if I were to try and draw a diagram with my hand, so this is the old age, and then this is the new age. If it was like that, it would just be the end of the old age, the beginning of a new age. But what happens is there is this overlap, and I haven't got enough fingers, but with my nose there, that's the first coming of Christ, and then that's the second coming. So we live in what's called the overlap of the ages, which explains why we still suffer, we still experience that sin and death are those we were looking at last week and the week before sin and death no longer have dominion over us that's because we're now in the new age which is um we now have the mindset of the spirit so so that's really kind of getting out so it's one of these things like are we saved well yes and no we are saved because we've been adopted but we've yet to experience the fullness of that um so yes good good spot Susie. Thanks. So, just repeat that for the uh, recording. So, question is: Can we consider ourselves with, as brothers and sisters of Christ? Um, is that correct? Although we want to make a distinction that, obviously, if Christ is God, we're not God. So, sort of, how does that work? Is that kind of... So, uh, so, short answer is: we, we can consider ourselves as brothers of Christ. Because, and this, I think, is helpful to go back to um, um, Romans 5. Do you remember Romans 5 in the second half? We saw um, that in contrast to the first Adam who brought sin and death, uh, Christ is the new Adam um, who brings life and righteousness. um, and so this picks up on this idea of uh, um, a reset to creation and that actually where the old Adam failed and was tempted, the new Adam resisted and brought salvation. So in, in that category, Christ is the, he's the new Adam. He, he's, he's the head of a new humanity. So another place to go, we won't go now, it'll be Hebrews 2, which picks up precisely as that and use the language of brothers because... And that, I think that's what Paul's getting out about with co-heirs, that him, because he... And this is tied to the fact that in order to be a second Adam, he had to take on the likeness of sinful humanity, which is what Paul um, picks up on in eight, chapter 8, verse um, 3, that he adds to himself a human nature so that he can be a second Adam. Um, so in that sense, he is... He's, he's the firstborn from among the dead. He is the head of a new humanity of which we've been included um, into that. Um, so we will reign with him. you know, Christ. When we meet Christ, he will have a body like we will have a body, a resurrection body that will uh, be all tied up with ruling the new creation. But also I think we want to make the distinction to say, going back to what I was saying before about as a son we've only we're only a son by adoption whereas he is a son by nature that he is the eternally begotten son of the father Um, and so we're not equal in that sense but actually the reason that we're adopted as sons, is because of his work. You know, it comes by virtue of him. We, we're dependent on him. We rely on him. So though he would call us a brother, it, it's not equal in the sense of that we're, yeah, we're dependent on him in a way that he's not on us because he is the one who is... His redeeming work means that we can be adopted as sons by the Father. Is that Tom? Do you want to happy? <laughs> Time for one more, as is traditional? Or are we um, all happy? Oh, Ricky. Oh, uh, Ricky and Nicky. But go on, Ricky's. <laughs> we'll mix it up. Um, so I think you mentioned that but, but I'm going to the word is spirit as the, recreate, the recreation. Yeah. Okay. It's getting hot in here. <laughs> um, so, uh, kind of the question is uh, I mentioned about how we're not simply redeemed as creatures, but we're redeemed as sons. Could I say more about that? Um, well, I mean, you said it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it's, it's trying to be. Because um, in many ways, I mean, to be fair, yeah, I mean, if, if you're trying to make a case for it, it just in terms of creation and new creation language, I mean, I guess we could say Adam. Well, Adam was a son of God, um, and therefore, to be um, to be sons of God is that category of um, God's image in us is restored. Um, so, going back to the created order of Genesis two, that that's we're 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 back in our place under kind of God, humanity, the rest of creation, and that you know, as Sons of God is, is tied up with um, being image bearers and then being distinct from the rest of creation and ruling. So in that sense, you know, um, there's that continuity. I think I think the comment is just trying to be true to this language of adoption and that actually we're, we're not... Um, we are adopted as sons of the Father. So it's not simply that God gives us life. As uh, creatures we're perishing and that we've been recreated as creatures. But it's, it's trying to just uh, tease out this idea that we're not, we're not only redeemed creatures, we're actually adopted as sons of the Father that becomes our status, and as such, um, heirs. And I think that becomes particularly significant when, as the son reveals the father. um, And I think that's why... Well, it's interesting, I was chatting to Tom earlier about, you know, the language of Abba, Father, that that the spirit attests to, we can kind of think, you can make a big point of that. Oh, look, you know, we get to call God Daddy, and you know, it's really kind of personal and intimate. But I think we have to be a little bit too, a bit careful because the. Um, would you believe it? My um, energy provider, um, I'm now part of the um, SSE family. Do you know? I've left the Eon. In fact, I go through um, these families every year. I left the Eon family. I've been in the Empower family. And now in this new family, they can't do enough for me, but I don't think it's going to end, end well. But everyone uses family language. You know, school's a family. Uh, your work probably uses you know, family. Oh, uh, the radio. Have you heard the... Um, uh, listen to Radio 2? They say they are one big family. You know, the uh, auntie, BBC, all that sort of stuff. And so we're not just to think of ourselves as well, this is just another family that we're a part of. This is trying to get at the, the fact that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son has revealed the Father to us, and the Spirit's work is to adopt us, so that we are sons with the Son, and God is our Father. That's that's what we're, what we're going. What I want to kind of press in on and kind of go further with that. So I hope so. That sort of helped a bit.